Hello and welcome back everyone to Minds Matter. You're listening to me, Ava, here in the studio and we've got Beth on Zoom as usual. Hi guys. Um, So today we are talking about quite a complex topic, I would say, which I guess is pretty normal for this podcast, Um, but we're going to be talking about art and beauty and aesthetics and um, what if anything, no, there will be something <laughs> that uh, what can psychology and neuroscience really bring to that discussion? Because it's been, as you might know, a pretty uh, a pretty long discussion in philosophy for millennia. Um, so first, I want to invite you to just think about all of the different things that are beautiful to you. So maybe you're thinking of like a beautiful person, someone's face, um, or maybe a landscape an emotional movie scene, um, or maybe you like love sports and you're thinking of someone scoring like an amazing goal in soccer, like dunking in basketball, someone doing a a crazy (laughs) skill, Um, or a really beautiful image to end it off, a seagull gliding across the sky. That's nice, right? Um, So obviously all of these things are pretty diverse. So is there anything that can really unify these things other than this idea of like beauty because we've got faces landscapes um you know natural formations um and we've also got like skilled um skilled actions from human beings like scoring a goal or dancing or something like that um so that's kind of I think will be part of the crux of this this episode is that beauty is so diverse it's so different for so many people and probably everyone who listened to this first thought of something different when when I said think about something beautiful yes um so are there any universals like does psychology tell us of any universals so it seems that with faces actually um I think this is actually kind of surprising but that with faces it does seem like that's kind of the category with the most universals so yeah people do symmetry isn't it yeah like so like faces. yeah exactly like across cultures and also with babies Babies stare at um, faces that are symmetric and that are actually average more. So, like, um, if you take a composite of 20 people's faces, that will be rated as more attractive than one of those faces, any individual, even if the individual is really beautiful. Yeah, so that's why that's the reason that people also say that, like, people who are mixed, because it's supposed to say something about your genetics and your fitness. So, like, people who are mixed are rated as sometimes more attractive because they're like an average um of these Um, two races so shout out to the mix people here we are genetic fitness (laughs) representing (laughs) um yeah so that's that's what we've got for faces but i also think that there are so many you know cultural factors that go into it um obviously um but then the second kind of most universal is actually landscapes so there is this kind of idea that um People really enjoy images that are that look like where we evolved in the Pleistocene. So when we were on the savanna, really? So yeah. So these are like uh, usually usually there are mountains. I think which isn't really part of the savanna, but definitely a body of water, <laughs> um, a couple people, animals, and diverse greenery, and also um, a path down the middle. Like so, people really enjoy like that type of artwork. Wow. And okay. across cultures, it's actually pretty much stable that people rate, like, that type of um, landscape architecture as the ones that they like the most, which is really interesting. <laughs> um, and it almost, like, sounds like a joke, I feel like, because it's, I don't know, it seems obvious. In a and way. I can't even picture what this, is. anyway, we'll have to post or share a story of what this image looks like. Well, think of, think for you, what is, like, the most beautiful landscape? Like, tell, tell the listeners what you picture. I mean, I think of the beach. Okay, you think of the beach. So yeah. water. Okay. Yeah. Well, Beth might be different because she's like, from, <laughs> she's from the beach. But it's usually like <laughs> fresh water. So basically somewhere where you can set up a good camp. Like that's the idea. Uh, um, and when, yeah. where you're safe. So typically it's like, you know, the places that when you're when you're hiking and there's an overlook, like the, the places that people Instagram. Because yeah. Yeah. that's what's considered beautiful. It's like, oh, we could all settle down here. So that's also pretty stable. And then second to last and least stable is architecture. So there are pretty varying um, 
notions of what people like and what people think are beautiful in architecture. And then finally, art is the one that's the most random, that like it's really hard to predict yeah. what people will like. Um, and lay people, like people who aren't really interested in art, they have really differing views of what is beautiful compared to people who are like art critics. Um, yeah. And obviously, like I'm sure some listeners like me have a hard time with super abstract art. Um, which is something that we'll talk about because it does evoke some emotions. Um, but before we get to that, maybe we can talk a little bit about some neuroscience responses to art. Yep. So I actually have a study, and this is about people's different responses to art. And this is, I don't know if you'd say this is a, is a flex, but it's an NYU study done by Gabrielle Starr, and she was the dean when I was there. So used to chat with her. Um, <laughs> Very cool. Just <laughs> subtly name dropping in the podcast. Yeah. Um, so they did a study where they took 16 students um, and they were shown 109 art images and they were from different cultures, different, um, you know, art move. I have a lot of artist friends and I feel like they're not going to be happy with my art terminology throughout this. So I'm sorry, guys. Um, different. Uh, so like abstract paintings, other di- like different styles, I guess that's what you would call that. And they were in the MRI and they saw the, um, the artworks and they were asked um, how much it moved you from one to four. And then they left the scanner and they were shown the 109 images again and they were asked um, nine different, they had to rate nine different feelings. So joy, pleasure, sadness, confusion, or fear, disgust beauty and so what this wanted to do was to see um what images invoke these like different feelings in in um in the participants and they found that um so people were really strongly moved by certain images and you know this was shown by their ratings but also the MRI um analysis and there was no so people were moved by completely different images so the feeling that they had was very intense and very strong. And again, you know, rated for the MRI showed this as well, but there was no consistency amongst participants. And it wasn't like, oh, these people from these backgrounds were moved by this because it meant that it was, they couldn't find any patterns. It was completely random. It was some abstract paintings, some realistic paintings. Um, So what this study was saying is that, so this experience that we have when we view art is very intense and, you know, can can provoke a lot within us, um, but it's not really clear why certain images do that. And they found that um, when people were really moved, the default mode network was engaged. So I feel like some of you guys may have heard about it. It's a term that I feel like gets thrown around a lot. And basically it's um, a network of brain areas that associated. It's also with things like dreaming and mind wandering. But um, when you're having like self-assessment and you're, you're thinking about yourself, it's basically what's happening when you're not focused on a, a single task. <laughs> so, um, so they were saying, so I guess these researchers assumed, oh, if you're looking at art, you would have like one region in the brain that would be, you know, working because you were having this one response. It was like, no, you had this whole whole process going on when you were looking at these images. So the next thing step for these guys is like, well, why is it we all are moved by by different art and different images? And yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of interesting to think about because <laughs> what does that say about us and our experience? Yeah, I think I think that is really interesting and it's and for that reason that it's so complicated to figure out you know what is beauty and why are people interested in different things and it's so hard to predict. Um and like what's around us, you know, Beth and I dress differently, we make different like aesthetic choices, we put up different stuff on our walls, we wear different jewelry, yeah. like all of those types of things that people find beautiful like they're so disparate and they're so different. So I think that also might be one of the reasons why like neuroscience, you know, in general is looked to this as this thing that can like give you the ground truth and the answers. And I guess like maybe there's a move towards that partially because 
you know, what's around us is not telling us the answer because even even if you think about how you dressed like 10 years ago, you'd be like, damn, that was not cute, <laughs> you know? So I think that's really interesting. Um, and it's so difficult to, to predict what someone will think is beautiful and what someone will think isn't. And I also think that one of the reasons that it's really difficult to look into the this like MRI data is that you're kind of not necessarily getting the full picture because it's interesting that this study said um, that it was the default mode network, like a lot of different regions. Um, but other studies that have been done looking into this, um, especially by Anjan Chatterjee, who's, who does a lot of this neuroscience of aesthetic stuff. Um, I think he's at UPenn. And he basically says that a lot of the experience of beauty is like located in the medial prefrontal cortex, which is like partially has to do with reward and integrating um, different values of rewards. Um, and I've, you know, looked at some of his papers and like read some of his interviews. And it seems that he's basically saying that that is beauty in a sense, that that's the experience of beauty, that there's a certain amount of reward, which I guess is pr- vague enough to say, okay, you know, I understand that that's fair. But at the same time, it's like, if you're giving someone, the way that they do these studies is they give someone like a whole bunch of uh, photos to look at, just like when they're outside of the scanner and they have them rate those photos. And then on like how much they like them, or I I don't even think it's how beautiful they think it is. It's how much they like them, which is a completely different question. Um, And then they have them go into the scanner and re-rate the pictures, but then they also have um, a measure of like the brain activation in the scanner. And they find this, this reward region all the time. And I guess, like, for me, the issue is that you're, you're kind of creating this almost, like, normative claim then of, like, this is beauty and this isn't beauty when you're only giving someone a really small subset of the types yeah. of things that they could find beautiful. And if you're saying people like this so they think it's beautiful, that's also not the same thing because I think beauty yeah. and, like, prettiness, interest, like, all of those things go into it. And really difficult experiences that are, like unpleasant I guess can be beautiful perhaps still rewarding um but yeah I think that's kind of the trouble with bringing in neuroscience and like this kind of reductionist Mm -hmm. point of view um so honestly when when Beth and I both when we were looking at this stuff we were both puzzled by the fact that it kind of felt like neuroscience and psychology maybe doesn't have so much to bring to this debate in a sense um but yeah, I guess it's interesting to see with this default mode network that you're basically just thinking about yourself and you're basically creating yeah. different um, like, yeah, like stories perhaps or linking it to people that you know and just bringing it back to yourself, which I think is something that we discussed in the music podcast as well. Um, and there's actually an interesting, a couple of interesting theories about why this happens. So one of them comes from Eric Kandel, who is... Um, like, I think he's a doctor, but he's also a neuroscientist and does experiments. Um, but he talks about this idea that there are both bottom-up and top-down processes that affect how we look at art. Um, and so what that means is that bottom-up mechanisms are kind of these lower-level mechanisms that just influence how you see lines and how you see color and how you see shape. And those are kind of these built-in things that allow us to make guesses that are right most of the time about what you're actually seeing. But then... These top-down processes are things that you've acquired over time and, like, adding associations into things and thinking, like, okay, this is, if I see, you know, a phone in the context of a museum, I'm not going to think it's functional, but if I see a phone next to me, I'm going to think that's actually someone's phone and maybe someone lost it. So that's, like, your experience bringing things into this. Yeah. Um, and his idea is that the vaguer something is, the more abstract it is, Um, the more that you're actually relying on your top-down processing as opposed to your bottom-up processing. So you have to bring in more of the ideas if you're looking at something abstract. Um, And it's more pleasurable, he says, because there's more imagination involved and you're actually part of, like, the creative process in that sense. Um, And so because of that, you're, you're really engaged with the art. And that's why he argues that abstract art can actually bring you more intense emotions than... Uh, than representational art um, so I thought that was interesting and I've definitely had the experience of like being really mad at abstract art because I'm like this, <laughs> this what am I looking at um, but I think that's I think it. It, another 
thing that's important also is in all of these studies, participants are asked, like even where the studies are set up. So in the one that I had, they were asked, how much were you moved by this image? And in the other one, it was like, oh, how much do you like this? And when you're doing these studies, those simple questions can completely change how someone responds yeah. to the to thing. So in the one where they're asking how much you're moved by it, I mean, that probably is more likely to, you know, bring you to the default mode network because you're, that's, uh, that's nearly inviting you to go there. Whereas if you're asking how much you like something, you're making it, it's a different ju- judgment. So that would also make sense that that brings up a different, you know, that, that brings up the reward system or, or a different system in the brain. So I think it's, it's important with this. And when looking at these studies, it's like, okay, well, what did they actually ask? And what, then what was the participant doing to give that answer? Because it is different. And can you really capture, so when you go to a museum and you're in front of a, a artwork, that's something, I don't know how you would ask someone to have that experience in a scientific setting. Like, I don't know what the question would be to actually get that that response because that's something that I don't, I, don't, I yeah thinking about now I can't think okay well what question would you ask in the MRI to have someone actually have that same experience of like getting lost in a painting at a museum which is a very you know profound experience that you know we we all have but if you can have that in the MRI not so sure yeah, I think the question of setting is is a really important one. And I think they've actually done studies where they have people look at the same paintings in like a lab versus in a gallery and people do have different experiences. Um, and yeah, this like kind of social context is very important. And another issue is like exactly what you said, that if you tried to make have an actual question about like trying to get at the experience that someone is having, It's so difficult because, like, as we said, none of these things are defined. So part of it maybe is how much you like something. It's how rewarding it is. Part of it is how much it moves you. But those are kind of separate things. Um, And then I think also if you ask someone how beautiful is this painting, even that, like, people have such different understandings of that word. Some people might think it to just mean how pretty do you think it is? How how valued do you think it would be, like, in society, not necessarily about you? So yeah, I think that's one of the huge issues here, which honestly is something that is an issue across psychology is that these constructs are so ill-defined that you get these different results because people are approaching the question in different ways and then saying that they're getting at the same thing. Um, so that's like an issue in general in this research, um, which yeah. I think this type of stuff really brings out. Um, so yeah, it's hard. <laughs> Um, But one thing that I think is often brought up in these discussions of beauty is the idea of like evolutionary um, constraints on on what we think is beautiful. And there are like actually a whole bunch of different theories within this, because when I first looked at it, I thought, okay, I get it. You know, like symmetry, it's about um, making sure that your genes are good, making sure that you're healthy and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, this whole landscape thing, like we're just evolved to to like the landscapes that we lived in before. Um, but there are actually a few disparate theories on this, which I think is interesting. Um, one of these comes from V.S. Ramachandran, who's at UC San Diego. Um, he's like a really big guy in like mirror neurons, and we talked about him in empathy, I think. Um, and so he argues that there's this idea that like nature takes these shortcuts with these bottom-up processes that we were talking about before. Um, and so he uses the example of the fact that like baby chicks Like, they know how to beg for food when they see their mothers. Um, But then scientists actually realize that it's not actually about, like, recognizing the mother. It's just that it's the beak. So they can see they they basically have, like, a system in place to recognize a beak. Um, So if you show them just a disembodied beak, then they're also pecking at it. Um, But then they took this one step further, and they actually just changed it to, like, a yellow stick with a red spot on it. And the chickens fall for it. And the chickens are like, this is great. This is my mom's beak. That's great. And so it seems like that is that is really the shortcut that they have, this, like, identification of, of like, something yellow with a dot in it. But then by accident, I think, they actually, like, showed them a longer stick with three red stripes that actually in a way looks more like a beak. And this freaked them out. And then they became, oh. like, really confused. And it, like, he argued that this, like, hyperactivated these, like, beak neurons. 
So, so going back to art, which is the main point of this question, I promise we're (laughs) making our way back. But so he argues that it's kind of the same thing for us with art, especially abstract art. And we're so enthralled with like these certain images because (gasps) there's sort of this underlying reason because there's like a shortcut that this art is pulling at um, that we don't even really realize that we're not like, oh, that's like, you know, my mom's beef. But you have a reaction to it um, just because you're, it, it is evoking something that is, like, touching some of our, like, beak neurons. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so he argues then that, like, the, these aesthetic experiences are about generating as many, like, aha moments as possible. And so what he means by that is actually, like, exploiting how the brain works. So there's this, um, there's this kind of theory of how the visual system works, which is that it that different brain regions iterate on each other and then they come together to make a representation of what you're seeing. Um, So it iterates first at this primitive level to like recognize certain objects and then it keeps iterating until it realizes, okay, the whole thing is a lion. So like there was an eye, there was this, and then you're like, aha, this is a lion. And so he argues that art kind of serves to create more of these aha moments than, or abstract art specifically than like representational art because you're evoking more of these things because it's more difficult to figure yeah. out what each thing is. Um, and interestingly, uh, we're going to talk about, I think, some brain lesion stuff, lesions. And um, so he argues that actually in, in seizures, there, there can be what he calls like a kindling effect um, mm-hmm. where the visual system and the emotional system in seizures, there's just like a really strong connection and that's, and there's like a strong electrical connection. That's why people have these seizures where these systems, the visual system and the emotional system get super linked together and the connections get so strong. And that kind of heightens your, your emotional response to colors and your emotional response to Mm -hmm. shapes. And actually Van Gogh had these seizures and that happened like later in life. And he only had like this explosion of art, like in the last three-ish years of his life, and obviously it was very colorful. No, um, I didn't know so that. they think that maybe there's something to do there. Van Gogh, sorry, Dutch <laughs> people. Um, yeah, so there is this idea that, you know, I think there is something interesting there in, in terms of, like, the neuroscience telling us what is going on with this idea of, like, a link between the emotional system and between the visual yep. system and that iteration of, Um, recognizing different components that is like something that's really interesting and that makes these aha moments and going back to what Eric Kandel said um, yeah that is like a pleasurable process because you're using your imagination and and you're also coming up with something that you feel like is originally yours in a sense that's yours yeah and people like that people like to have them inside stuff So those are maybe some interesting things that neuroscience can bring to the table is looking at those those types of things. Um, yeah, and then on that in terms of actual brain regions and um, and art. So it was funny when I was reading this, I was like, oh, I don't think I've ever spoken about this on the podcast before and it may be interesting to some of you guys who don't have a science background. But a lot of early neuroscience and working out how the brain worked was from people who had brain damage. So it would be like, oh, someone's like someone's had damage to this area of the brain and now they can't do this. And I'd be like, okay, well then this area must be responsible for this. And yeah, that actually um, gave us a lot of insight into, yeah, and in medicine and, and all of these things. So when you read about um, a lot of the brain regions we initially worked out, they did that through through people with brain damage. Um, and this is, you know, before we could do MRIs or any of those things, it was just seeing what was lost. So what's, um, so then what was interesting is um, to look at, okay, what happens with artists who have brain damage. And initially there was a scientist in 1948 and he had a writer, a um, painter and um, a musician and they all had uh, damage in the left hemisphere. So, um, and after this, the writer couldn't work at all, couldn't, couldn't write any stories, form anything. But the painter and mu- musician um, were completely, completely fine. And they could keep, keep um, painting, music making. <laughs> um, and, what, and then, so this was like one of the first, 
this is one of the first people who looked into this. But then what's interesting is as people continue to look at this, um, art and artistic talent doesn't seem to go away with different brain, like in with brain damage in different regions. So you might think, oh, if someone has this area damage, they won't be able to do this. But it actually is not the case at all, which is pretty interesting because usually if someone has damage, you know, that people with brain damage in all sorts of areas of the brain and no one's lost their artistic talent, that's wow. pretty, yeah, pretty interesting. And um, there was even um, one artist who had damage in the right hemisphere and usually what happens when people have that when when they draw, they can only draw one one side. So when they're filling things out, they can only do one side. Um, and you can look that up online. There's like images of people who have damage in the right hemisphere and they do these strange drawings. But for this artist, um, they actually could draw the other side. They couldn't color both sides in, but they could draw the other side. Wow. Um, pretty cool. <laughs> That's so strange. Why, but- why could they draw things but not color them? They they don't know and they're the like maybe artists <laughs> some have some resistance to this or I don't know this gets me thinking like well maybe art like this is something I feel like I'm gonna start sounding crazy but when I read about this stuff it's like well maybe that artistic thing is something above I don't know I it's hard to explain like it's not it's more related to yeah your consciousness and your ex- rather than mm. just like one one area of you it's like yeah definitely. more about does that make sense like who, who you are um and so there's you know they think artists may have some resistance to to damage brain damage in these areas and then another interesting thing is people with dementia and alzheimer's continue to produce art after they have it so they lose all sorts of other things and it's it's awful, but they can continue to be creative. It gets to a point when obviously they they lose their motor skills, so they can't hold, hold pens and things. But um, up until that point, they can, yeah. So they may be forgetting who their family are, but they can still produce artwork and their art style and and what they paint. And everything doesn't change from from before they had um, the dementia or Alzheimer's, and that's the same with brain damage artists. They, their art doesn't change after after the incident. Wow. And all brain damage? That's, that's. It's crazy, right? Well, the ones I read, I mean, obviously there's like really extreme cases, but um, in, you know, these mild ones where, yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting because, okay, I guess this was a, a more extreme case of damage, but I think in, in psychology and neuroscience, one of the first kind of lesion cases that you hear about is Phineas Gage and if yeah. there's anyone who does psych or neuro like here, you know, he pops up in basically every slide for, or like every intro class, you know, ta- always talking about Phineas Gage because he had, I think a pole went through his head, yeah. like it's into the, the medial prefrontal cortex, like exactly this region that we were talking about. Um, and so when he had this pole go through his head, at first everyone thought, okay, he's fine. Um, because there was nothing different about him. He was doing all of like the neuropsych test properly. His attention was fine. Um, but everyone around him basically was like, he's a different person. Like he's completely yeah. changed who he is. Um, and so that was an interesting, like just in the history of like lesion studies or damage studies, that was interesting because, because um, psychologists and the doctors first thought, okay, well, I guess that region like right behind your eyes, it doesn't really do anything. Because it doesn't do fine. anything. <laughs> Um, but it changed entirely who he was. So I feel like this idea of like someone's art not changing is really interesting, but maybe if there was damage to like the medial prefrontal cortex, there would be a change because if that's like who you are, but I think it's, it's true that because art is such a distributed process, like, as you said, it's not like you have an art center in your brain and it integrates all of these things like reward, thinking about yourself, thinking about other people, thinking about the situation that you're in, the culture, like so much is built on top of that to create art because art is supposed to reflect all that stuff, I guess. Um, Yeah. It's interesting that people are more resistant to different types of brain damage, but I really wonder whether like these centers that are supposed to be who you are, whether that can, can change your art. Well, that's interesting though, because, you know, dementia definitely affects the prefrontal cortex. That's like, you know, they lose being able to 
you know, interpret faces, all, all of these things that, it, and that's, and they, you know, the studies show that they can still, still make art. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. I know that that really like, I was like, wow, lot to think about. <laughs> yeah. That's really interesting. Um, yeah, I guess maybe, yeah, I suppose when I started this, I was like, neuroscience isn't bringing anything to this, but I think <laughs> where, where it can come in is looking at actually like the different components of what makes art. So like whether it's, you know, your perception of colors and shapes, like I'm sure that obviously if your visual system is, is, is cooked, then, you know, yeah. you're, you're not going to be able to do that aspect of the art. Um, yeah. But it's, it's crazy that it's so distributed that it's, it's intact after even a lot of brain damage. So I wonder also like, yeah, if it's also like body memory, I don't know. Like, you know, yeah. people can, yeah, it, I don't know. It could be something, there would be so many things going on. It would be really interesting to, to under, understand more what, what could be happening. Cause it could be, be so many things. Yeah. I think that's the thing with this idea of like art and beauty is like breaking it down to the component processes, which I feel like hasn't really been done as much maybe because it's so variable, like even more so than yeah. something like music. Because I think we talked about in our music episode that um, people with dementia or actually people who have, um, I forget what it's called. Is it aphasia? Is that what it's called? Where you can't speak yeah. anymore? Is that right? Wow. I hope none of my profs are listening to this. <laughs> um, but yeah, where you're not able to speak anymore, people are still able to sing. Um, and they're actually sometimes able to like train themselves from singing to speaking and kind of getting the... Because in that kind of damage, it's like the the left side of the brain, an area is damaged there. And the right side that has like a symmetric um, kind of uh, structure can take over. But it's usually responsible for melodies and stuff like that. And I think that like there's there's kind of uh, more of a, a deeper level of analysis, which is that song and rhythm is a kind of different part of the brain. And that's why you're able to train it back in. But I feel like with art there's so many component processes that it's really hard to figure out, okay, what is, what is this doing? And also what can it give you? Because you're not going to train yourself to talk through art, I suppose, but maybe. Yeah. I, um, when I was reading about the brain damage studies, I was saying, okay, well with other things like with writing, the unit of writing is a word and you can lose the capacity to, you know, read or understand those, but like, what's the unit of art? Like, it actually it's not just a brush stroke it's like what is what is it I wonder if people this is like obviously speculation but I wonder if people who maybe have certain brain damage where like if they're a painter and then they're not able to paint for like motor reasons or whatever it is or like stop being able to perceive color whether it then goes into like a different kind of modality or whether like if you're a visual artist you really stay a visual artist um, right yeah yeah I don't like honestly I don't know if there's been studies on this but it would be really interesting yeah. to see. Um yeah. I feel like we're coming around to thinking like Yeah, this is initially cool, we were like, oh, I don't know about this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um okay, I want to talk about a couple more of like the evolutionary um hypotheses here. So, I didn't I I only spoke about one, but one of the other ones is by this guy Dennis Dutton, Duton, I'm not sure. Um, but he also is like an evolutionary psychologist and he believes that beauty is basically just an adaptation, like anything else in evolution. So just like, you know, we have opposable thumbs, like beauty serves its purpose. Um, and he argues that this is just intensified in the enjoyment of art. So like we are just predisposed to see things as beautiful and that's why we like art because it's something that's wired in us and that's then brought to the center of focus. Um, But another thing that I thought was interesting about his work is that he actually extends this to art. And so he argues that, you know, when we think someone shooting a goal is amazing and beautiful, we see that as beautiful. It's also because we are really responsive to the fact that uh, like skillful uh, action in humans is a beautiful thing because he argues that that conveys some like fitness um, right. information. And so he takes the example of this, these, you know, it's hard to describe on the radio, but, um, <laughs> he takes the example of these, these, you know, these rocks that were sharpened as tools to like break things. And they kind of have a teardrop shape with, with, uh, like a spike at the top. 
yeah, and they're yeah. so there there were a lot of these and and uh, archaeologists have found a lot of these types of artifacts, but um, they've been confused by the artifacts that they found because some of them are really big, like too big to use as a tool, and some of them are just like still super sharp. So it seems like <laughs> people had produced way more of these types of artifacts to just serve a purpose because like they weren't being used, they weren't right. blunted. Um, and so they thought that was really weird. And then they actually argued that they thought this is actually an artistic expression. And mm-hmm. um, so this was like kind of like the first form of art. And so Dennis Dutton argues that uh, the reason that people would start to do this is because it does convey like these different aspects of fitness. Like it means that you have access to resources and you can just make these these little art pieces without actually using them because you have so many more. So you have resources and that you're able to plan and that you're skillful with your hands um, and that all of these things are things that, you know, convey fitness and that let's say this is, you know, the evolutionary perspective that like women in the tribe would then be like, I want that guy, (laughs) like father, my children. Um, Classic. Um, The evolutionary perspective is questionable, obviously, but he argues that like artistic flair basically evolved in the same way as any other adaptation. But I mean, I might be understanding his theory incorrectly, but it's just not true that we find things that are fitness or anything beautiful, like the most beautiful, like think about artwork that you love. Like it can be a photograph of someone in a very vulnerable place or someone struggling, I don't know, watching movies. That's also a form of art. Like I just, I don't know. I think if anything, sometimes art's the opposite. Like I guess he is arguing in this case that it's like, you would be into the artist because he has skills because he has like this certain set of skills and maybe you for example appreciate someone who's able to like take um an emotional scene and put it and represent it in in, on a canvas it's not about the actual art it's about the artist yeah exactly Mm, yeah so he so he has this idea (laughs) that there's kind of he has a book i believe it's him we'll put it in the notes that there's kind of like this beauty instinct, the same way that there's like a language instinct. Um, And so we're kind of primed, like you don't necessarily, when you're born, like know how to speak a language and you don't, well, you don't. And you don't, uh, you also don't necessarily have like a specific ideal of beauty. Um, But with time, because it's such a distributed process, then your associations and like this instinct that can underlie um, this like bottom-up process that can underlie all this stuff, that that brings together this this idea of beauty and that we have this instinct as humans to have beauty. So that's kind of an interesting take. I don't really know what I think of it. I feel like evolutionary psychology can go go wonky pretty easily. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So there's, and then just the last evolutionary psych thing, which I think is interesting just because it's slightly different. Um, this comes mm-hmm. from this guy, Richard Prum, I think who is actually uh, an ornithologist. So he's just like coming at it from the bird perspective. He's just looking at (laughs) birds all the time. He's bird watching. And he has a really, really big fat book about this that I think it's called The Evolution of Beauty or something, but it's just about birds. And, um, but he takes an interesting perspective because he argues that it is an evolutionary, um, an evolutionary kind of adaptation. But he argues that there's this idea of like natural selection and then that sexual selection is a whole different thing, which is also something that, you know, that Darwin was a proponent of because Darwin was super perplexed by um, peacock's feathers because he was like, this is terrible. A predator <laughs> is going to a predator is going to come eat them yeah, because they're displaying these huge these huge feathers. Um, so then because of that, Darwin kind of decided, OK, there must be something more going on here. And he dec- he argued that there was this idea of sexual selection. And so this guy, Richard Prom kind of takes it a step further and he argues, honestly, I'm not, I'm not super well versed in like evolutionary biology and the state of the state of it. But he argues that in evolutionary biology, there's more of this view of like Dennis Dutton's view that it's like really just an adaptation um, and that it helps with fitness. But he argues that it's a completely different thing and that beauty is like selected for by itself um, and that it kind of goes rogue. So that... There's this idea that, like, women will prefer something, and basically beauty is just whatever, like, women, like, the females or the one that's selecting will prefer, and that this evolves separately from actual fitness, 
And so the example that he makes is that like in beaks, birds' beaks, there's a mm-hmm. lot less uh, variability. Um, so birds of paradise, which are those birds that do like all these crazy things and have these crazy feathers yeah. and like display in these wild ways, that their beaks are actually mostly the same. So they're because their beaks really serve a purpose. And there's only so many ways that you can like crack a nut. But <laughs> the, the feathers are just like go wild. And so he and these are not it doesn't help with their fitness at all. And to the point where they've looked at some of the bones of the birds that have these crazy feathers and it's like messed up their bones. But it's being selected oh for by the females in, in the bird community, the females. Um And so it actually reduces fitness, but he argues that beauty is this other type of thing that's actually separate from adaptation that has just run wild. And how does it, like, how does it, I don't understand, how did the women birds, (laughs) like, decide what was, I don't know, what was beautiful? Just like the way that that evolution typically goes, that there's just kind of these random, um, these random drifts in what people prefer, people, birds. What the, what the organism, or let's do science words, what the organism <laughs> prefers. Um, and so these random drifts create this separate kind of evolutionary pressure. Um, and that just kind of continues. And I, I think well. it's an interesting idea. Um, and I, I, I don't really know how it fits in with, like, the human side of it. Because I guess it's kind of this idea of, like, culture almost, um, but more innate, like, more biological. But it kind of sounds similar that, like, across different cultures, obviously they'll they'll prefer different things. Like, you know, yeah. back in the day in China, they were making their feet really small. Yeah. <laughs> so that's not necessarily something you would want today. Um, so I think that's kind of an interesting idea that, like, that is actually, that is this evolutionary perspective, but it is actually quite different than the other perspectives that are, like, it's just about fitness. Um, that's, right. like beauty can just kind of run rogue. Just do what it wants. Yeah. So I kind of like that, but I'm not really sure how it applies to the human, the human uh, context. And I'm not, and I, I'm not really sure what, what the, what Richard Prom thinks either. It seems like he's just. <laughs> Maybe he doesn't care. He's just like, I'm just going to focus on the birds. That's <laughs> the vibe. I'm not so concerned about beauty and art and then the, with the humans. <laughs> he, I, the stuff that I read, he didn't mention humans. He definitely didn't care. So, yeah. But I think those are kind of interesting takes on this evolutionary argument because, in a way, it seems very obvious. But these little deviations and arguments, um, I think, really change the kind of the final message of it. So, yeah. And maybe the last thing that we can talk about is the social aspects of art because we actually haven't really broached that um but for the artist so there was this um this art critic in vienna in in the 1920s like around the time of picasso um and all the other paris artists who said that um that a painting isn't done until someone has seen it and i really like this idea because i think it brings up the fact that like for artists there is a social aspect to it and there is this kind of yes. like theory of mind um that and like putting yourself in someone else's shoes and thinking about your audience and also for the beholder of of a work i think there also is like a lot of theory of mind involved when you're trying to like yeah. create meaning out of things um and i think that this is sort of happening more and more maybe because some art is difficult to interpret but i feel like at museums it kind of seems like there's a lot more emphasis on the artist and the artist's life and like stories mm-hmm. about the painter and people really enjoy that. Um, yeah. And also in the subject of art, it's been shown that people really like paintings that have like a few people. So they prefer those paintings to paintings uh, where there's no one and uh, they yeah. don't really like paintings where there's a whole bunch of people, maybe because as we talked about in empathy, it's like too computationally explosive to, <laughs> to think about what everyone is thinking. Um, so I think there's this really interesting aspect of like art being super like a social kind of experience and like Beth was talking about with this default mode network it's really about looking at the art and placing yourself and placing your life and placing the people that are around you Um, but it doesn't seem like there's necessarily so much social activation other than the default mode network but maybe that's yeah that's I think I was also surprised when I was reading up on this I thought there would be more about culture and society and and these 
these themes, but it, it really did not much came up with this. And I thought, I thought that was, that was kind of interesting that, that it didn't. Yeah. That you would think it would be a lot about culture, but I think, I think it's, yeah. it might be because there's just so many kind of like aesthetic cultures that exist, like yeah. these countercultures or like various even within things, yeah. um, that it's kind of hard to study one type of aesthetic. Although I'm sure there are people yeah. who are like studying goths. I don't know. To <laughs> That's the but I think also an interesting aspect, yeah, is this is this fact of like culture and how culture influences us. Um, and that like art also doesn't happen in a vacuum. So there are yeah. like a few studies that that show um, that art and like the way that we perceive things and the ex- aesthetic experiences that we do have, they are super influenced by the context. So there are these studies where they've given people, I think even like not even lay people, like people who are wine experts, they've given them different wines and they've told them or they've labeled them differently and said, this is a super expensive wine. Um, And they've also scanned these people while they're drinking that wine. And they find that people rate like the wines, even if they're actually $3 wines, but they say, you know, this is like a Bordeaux 87 like $100 a glass or something, that um, that they actually find that those wines taste better. And in the brain, there is activation of, like, more of these reward and pleasure like systems. Like they feel, yeah. So it's fully, like, they're having a different experience just based on the context. And they've also done studies that I think are kind of similar with this idea of context where they present people with um, similar, similar um, methodology where they just present people with different artworks. And they either say this was made by, like, this was computer generated, so made by a computer or made by a person. And people really respond more deeply and have more of these reward activations um, and probably more of this default mode network with art that they think was made by a human, even though it's completely random and not true. Yeah. Um, And I mean, I would, I feel like we would all relate to that. (laughs) Like, and that's also why when you go to the museum, you love to read, like, I mean, I'd, you know, you go to a museum, you wouldn't want to not know who created it, you know? Yeah, but I think, I mean, I've heard people criticize this movement towards, like, um, towards looking at who the artist is and stuff like that. And I actually, in in the Van Gogh <laughs> Museum in Amsterdam, um, I think, like, I was really struck. I remember when I went, there was, there was um, either on the audio guide or whatever or on just, like, the plaque, there was a painting um, from one of Van Gogh, oh my God's final days. And I feel like you're giving a good job to even attempt that. So <laughs> Van Gogh um, from his final days. And it was like this very kind of brooding photo with like a very dark background of this field. And there were like crows. Um, if I can find this, I'll, I'll also attach it to the website. But um, yeah, it was like this super intense thing that really, looked like okay like he knows that he's dying like he knows that he's about to die um and they said that in the in the the notes or whatever Mm -hmm. it was but then they also said you know if you just saw this you could definitely make that connection and it makes the painting seem profound but they said actually he also painted like a whole bunch of other stuff in his last days and some of it was happy some of it looked like this um and so I feel like it's interesting because that kind of brings in this idea of what is making your aesthetic experience? Because it's still the same painting, but you might think if this was his last work, it's yeah, so much it's, more profound and you're thinking about it so much more deeply. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I remember thinking like, damn, that really, like, because I feel like I really relate to paintings on this level of what's the painter feeling and like connecting with the painter in a sense. Yeah, well, because you think about, oh, he was there, it was he, he knew what was coming. Like, you know, you imagine, you, yeah, you bring that bring that to the story. But I have a feeling that for people who really love art, that's kind of like a lowbrow thing to do. Right. So we're going to get like, yeah, okay. <laughs> so, but I really don't, like, I think neither of us are, are super into art. And no. so it's hard to think about. Um, but also with these art critics, I think there's like also not necessarily one kind of, like, it's not like they just have a purely aesthetic experience based on what they're seeing. Because, the, you know, the scandals in the art world are often about fakes and frauds. Yeah. And so when someone, you know, someone will buy a painting for millions of dollars and then, you know, the gallery or a scandal comes out and says that wasn't the real painting, 
you know, they're like, this is garbage, even though it's the same painting. And what would they say if you asked why you bought it? They would say, because it's beautiful, because I love it. It's the same painting. So what's going on there, you know? So I think there's just like a really interesting social constraint on our aesthetic experiences. Um, And it's not really obvious why those things happen. And I think it's hard for people to explain it to themselves as well. Because maybe as a scientist, you can say, yeah, they're creating the story. They're creating all this stuff. But then if it's just about status, if it's just about, you know? Yeah. So I think this whole, maybe there is a lot more growth that neuroscience can can bring to this field. But I think it just definitely needs more accurate defining, I would say. And I think from what I was reading, it seems like there is more, like this is a, a growing field, a new and, and growing field. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, where I feel like I, I maybe that's just the state of psychology, but I feel like and neuroscience. Yeah, everything we do is new and growing. <laughs> I mean, it's true though. I feel like most, especially most human neuroscience studies, like they're from. They don't know what's going on. Yeah, like an fMRI, EEG, like that just started thirty years ago. So. Yeah, it's funny because obviously before this, I didn't do psychology. I did medical research and I feel like the more I learn in psychology it's definitely like the more I know we don't know I've never and the more I'm learning about how the studies are set up I'm like ah we don't know anything yeah <laughs> nothing it's the same all these studies are different yeah and <laughs> you add you add like methodological crises in the field which is like a whole different topic but yeah it's a it's um, a it's a scary time to be a psychologist but yeah. <laughs> I mean I think what all of this shows is that art and beauty is really important to our experiences and that you should seek it out. You should try to create yeah. art for yourself, try to engage with art because you might kind of learn something about yourself, yourself. and your emotions. Yeah. And it's just like a yeah. nice sort of prompt. Um, and maybe but, next time you head to the museum, I don't know if everyone's allowed to go to museums. If we're not. Listening to this. Right. Sorry. <laughs> sorry, everyone. Um, the next time you are able to go to a museum, think, why do I find this beautiful? Yeah, and flick What's, on this podcast yeah. while you're at it again. You just you'll just yeah. be simmering <laughs> in all the experience. No, actually, don't do that because that will probably take away from your artistic experience. Um, all right, we're gonna play some more art for you, some some musical audio art now, and um, send us send us your favorite painting, send us your favorite um, installation, whatever art that you like. We'd love to see it. <laughs> 